Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 77 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Sid Gupta, the co-founder and CEO of Quince. By removing the middleman from the supply chain, Quince is the first M2C manufacturer-to-consumer online destination for quality-first essentials, including apparel and fine jewelry, to home decor and kitchenware. In this episode, Sid shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in the Bay Area where he worked at Fry's Electronics to joining at a consumer and retail M&A group after graduating from the University of Chicago to creating Lolly and Pops into one of the largest independent confectionery chains in the U.S. with over 90 stores serving over 5 million customers annually to launching Quince just three years ago. We talk about how he's grown the company to include over 60 factories, his perspective on the future of retail, and how Quince got its name, and why it was originally called Last Brand. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe or text me. You can text me at 310-510-6044, that's 310-510-6044, to enter to win free products and get special discounts from some of your favorite brands. And they're my favorites too, so shoot me a text and say hello, or just tell me your favorite brand and I'll try to hook you up. I'm so excited to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Sid, it's so awesome to see you again. We met, I mean, a while ago. I know. Yeah, it's so good to see you, Lee. I mean, we must have, what, did we meet at, at a conference like a couple years ago now? Like a, yeah, you, know, you were on, yeah, you were on that panel that I had at Retail Next. I think it was a CEO summit. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Down in Monterey, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back had when you, people were had hanging you out. left by then for Grin? Um, that was when I was with Grin. You were, you yeah, were, I'm you had just there. left, right? You had just, right. yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I know. So it's great to see you. I'm so excited to hear, you know, more about your company Quince, which I think was called something else when you were on stage with me at retail next. You know, when we had, when I was on stage, it was just in its early yeah. formation. It was called last brand actually. Uh, yeah. I <laughs> knew our, the name yeah. was different. That's yeah. right. It was our OG name. Um, and um, customers quickly told us like, what do you mean? It's the last brand. Is it the last? Is it the stuff that no one wanted? Oh. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, what's wrong with it? <laughs> and so, you know, that, uh, that quickly convinced us that we better come up with a better name, uh, you know, so, so. There, How'd you come there, up with Quince? Uh, well, uh, you know, there's the official story, which is, you know, we were thinking about names and we like 
the word quintessentials and, mm. you know, Quinn sells premium essentials, uh, you know, for, you know, a great price. And so we said, okay, well, what's a shortened version of quintessentials and that's Quince. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, off the record, uh, the, um, you know, we were eating at a sister restaurant through to a three Michelin star restaurant called Quince in SF. And we really loved the name. Um, and the restaurant we were eating at was not nearly as fancy, but quite good food. Uh, and so we said, if it was good enough for a three Michelin star restaurant, then it might be good enough for us. And so, you know, um, you know, and also, you know, quince was like a fruit. It's like, I don't know if you've ever eaten a quince, but it's between a what? pear and an apple. No, I didn't even know this is actually a food. Yeah. Like actually most people eat quince as a jam. They like it as a jam. Really? Am yeah. I the only person who've never heard of this is like, it's a fruit? No, I mean, it's not big in the US. I think it's like a European thing, frankly. Um, but I am married a, to a German, so I feel like I have no excuse right now. You should, you <laughs> should ask him. <laughs> so, um, have you not told me about this quince Yeah, fruit? you should ask what he's been uh, holding back. Uh, from <laughs> Why is store. he hiding this? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, so, you know, it was a broad canvas of, of, you know, anything we could fill in it. So, um, anyways, wow. we liked the name. It was, it was, um, crisp, it was clean. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it, it represented a modernity about what we were trying to do. So we were like, it. very quince. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, I'm excited to hear about it. And, um, but I think, you know, there's so much more to kind of cover here. So maybe you can just kind of start with a quick background, you know, where you're from, what was childhood like, like, tell us more about you. Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in a small town, at least at it was a small town called Fremont. Is the Bay um, Area a small town? I, for some reason, that just doesn't go together. Yeah, it, it, you know what? I'll, I'll give you a funny story. So uh, growing up in Fremont, there was vast amounts of farmland still hmm. in Fremont. And so uh, I remember the house I moved into when I was five, if you looked out in my backyard, it was on these hills were complete farms, people with horses and cows and everything. Wow. And of course, now that's all filled with houses. Um, and so, um, but it was really, you know, no one thinks about it, but Silicon Valley was just basically a bunch of orchards, uh, you know, if you go back 50, 60 years ago. And so uh, obviously a lot, a lot has changed. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Fremont, um, had a solidly middle-class family and background. Um, I think uh, interest in business came early from for, for me. Uh, you know, I had parents who were entrepreneurs and uh, grandparents who were entrepreneurs, um, you know, um, and um, so it just kind of, you know, whether it was, you know, reading the, the newspaper, you know, in the morning and seeing my dad look at the stock uh, you know, tickers on the, on the, in the newspaper. Cause back then, you know, they didn't have the, the internet. Robin so, Hood. <laughs> so, you know, no one would, you know, you'd kind of look at the back pages of your business section. You get to see what the stocks were trading at. Um, or, you know, my mom was a realtor. Um, and so growing up, helping her, uh, build her business, um, she, she became quite a successful realtor and lugging, uh, open house signs and oh, wow. photocopies and Any whatever cookies that. when they walk yeah, in. Exactly. You, yeah, exactly. That whatever you had to do to to sell the house. Yeah. <laughs> so. The bones are really good here, we swear. The bones are really good. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. So you kind of knew early on because of the influence of your family that maybe entrepreneurship was something you'd want to pursue. 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was also very prevalent in in kind of the Indian community in the Bay Area. A lot of our family friends went on to start, uh, in retrospect, quite successful technology companies, uh, and um, and so it was a very common thing for folks to do, uh, you know, in in the community in which I grew up. So uh, not something unusual at all, and something frankly encouraged. Interesting. That's yeah. cool. So. Um, what happened from there? I know you got your MBA uh, from Stanford and uh, studied economics at University of Chicago. So what were some of your first kind of jobs early on in the school days? You mean at school or after I finished school? Um, maybe during school. Like, did you have internships? What were some of the kind of the smaller maybe jobs you were working early on? Yeah, it's, I'm trying to think about what, well, so I'll tell you my first job, uh, which which will crack people up. My first job was in retail. It was at Fry's Electronics, uh, which folks who don't know Fry's, it is a legend, but it is the predecessor to uh, Circuit City and I think Best Buy anyways, Uh, but like on a much grander scale. Are they like the OG of like electronic stores? Because they certainly look like it. Yeah, there's one here. Yeah, where I am, but. I, I remember growing up, and so obviously we grew up in Silicon Valley, so computers were a thing. So if you wanted a computer, this was like before Dell, you know, you'd basically like build your own. So you could go to Fry's and you could buy the motherboard and you could buy the fan and you could mm-hmm. buy the CPU and you could buy the RAM and you could just assemble your own PC or you could buy what was called a clone basically, which is like, you know, a uh, kind wow. of a white label computer, if you wanted video card, you could just assemble it. And so these places became these clearing houses for like all the components to build your own stuff. It was kind of like a hobby for a lot of people. Um, crazy. So, I mean, not so my, in Delaware, that was not happening in Delaware. No, if it was, was I did not know where that was happening in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's crazy how, how big, big that was. So anyways, my first job was at Fry's Electronics. I think I got paid like four, $4 and 75 cents an hour. And I was a sales associate in the software uh, department. Were you selling gateway computers? I was not selling. Do you remember those? They had the cow print. That's on right. The, the cow. Yeah, no, yeah. The, that was, that was about the appropriate time though, in which I was at Fry's. And um, I, I have a fond memory in that I didn't agree with the way the software was organized, meaning like they had organized it a certain way, you know, the higher ups. And I thought it was a stupid idea. So I went on my own accord and reorganized all the like titles of the software and uh, quickly, I got the call that I was out of line, and <laughs> I had to go back and put it back. And then after that, I was like, oh, "This job's not for me. I'm, I'm not qualified to do this." <laughs> That's hilarious. Too much yeah. thinking outside the box. Too much. Like too, much too much being an entrepreneur. It wasn't good. It wasn't encouraged. <laughs> That's funny. Fry's Electronics. I mean, I literally just learned about that from living here. Um, I'm in Woodland Hills in LA, okay. and yeah. Um, yeah, they have a store. It's empty all the time and it's massive, but is it's it? a very like crazy looking store in there. They have it's like everything. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. Huge. Um, so interesting. So yeah, I guess after you graduated, what were what was your first job from there? So, um, you know, kind of surprise, surprise. I mean, I think if you uh, graduated in 2002, which was actually in a bit of a recession, you know, uh, from the University of Chicago, they had a pretty good program into banking and consulting. And um, I always like to say I wasn't smart enough to get a job in the consulting firm. So I took a banking job and I um, 
I ended up working uh, at Solomon Smith Barney, which actually got acquired by Citigroup. And um, uh, that's actually where uh, I joined the consumer and retail group. Uh, and so I spent a couple years doing consumer and retail M&A, uh, you know, uh, pitching equity offerings, although it, there wasn't much going on at that time in, time, uh, in place, mm -hmm. debt offerings, those kinds of things. Uh, it was really a kind of a boot camp for finance and uh, a little bit of accounting um, and a little bit of strategy as well. Interesting. So you were in finance for a little bit. You were kind of probably getting a pretty good view or perspective into these different brands, consumer, retail. Um, how did you go from that to being the founder and starting Lolly and Pop, which is such a cool, I love that company. And it's such a oh, cool story. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was a complete accident. <laughs> so <laughs> after, my, after, after I finished a stint in banking, I went to work uh, in private equity. I worked at a firm called Catterton Partners. Uh, which is now called L Catterton, uh, and they've they really have become the premier, I think, consumer and retail shop, uh, and have done a lot of great things. I think, um, and had a nice privilege to work there and spend time with a lot of talented people there uh, who are running this place now. And um, I um, enjoyed investing quite a bit. I must I must admit, but what I was always really frustrated with was. Uh, you know, you couldn't actually make the change happen. You were kind of, you know, as an investor, you're kind of, um, you kind of influence the management team, but your job is not to actually run the company. And I always just wanted to run the company. And, you know, <laughs> like, I think- Let me myself, in on that. I'm coming yeah, in. <laughs> yeah, let me do it. You know, I remember I was sitting in a board meeting and I'll never forget this. And I, and I was thinking to my, uh, you know, I was telling the management team, I was like, all your margins by like 5% of this business is amazing. And they looked at me like, you know, I was a 25 year old idiot that I was and said, well, you know, you come and do that because it's really hard to improve gross margins 5%, you know, and that's um, hilarious. And so, you know, so I, I figured I needed to go um, uh, learn a thing or two about business. As an aside, they did figure out how to pick the 5% up margin. And then the business became very successful as a result. So I will say I, I, I was directionally accurate, even though I didn't know how to do it. So I left, I wasn't sure what to do. Um, you know, um, I didn't have a particularly great technology startup idea or anything. I just wanted to go get some operational experience. And um, I decided to apply my investing background and basically buy an existing company. And so I looked for lots of different things to invest in. And I had a methodology and the way I was thinking about buying a company. And I ended up buying a distressed chain of 11 candy stores for basically the sum total of my life savings, which was like 50 grand at the <laughs> time. Um, what? So I literally, Wait, how does that even work? Like, how did you find this company? And what made you decide, I'm just going to buy something that already exists instead of starting something from scratch? Like, where did that come from, that idea? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, I know a lot of this uh, chat is about, you know, how do you start as an entrepreneur? And I think, I think one of the things that I find in retrospect that's so important is having an authenticity to the problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people try to start companies and some do that don't understand the problem well, but they figure it out and they're successful, but most really have to understand a problem really well. And I don't know that I had a problem that I really understood well to kind of start a company from scratch. And so I said, okay, let me go and see if I can buy a company that's operating. And, 
you know, then you're like, well, where do you get the money to do that? And, you know, you convince some, some people who do have money to, to lend it to you to go buy this or invest in, in you to buy it. In this case, I didn't need that because I bought a truly broken business. I mean, in all intents and purposes, you can't imagine the, the lights were hanging down. <laughs> really? What else is broken? Tell us yeah. about it. So there's 11 I mean, stores you're saying, and they were yeah. all busted up. I mean, what do you mean? Busted up, you know, <gasps> poorly run. The, the employees were stealing. Like it was just like a complete disaster. I mean, if and you these can, were candy stores. They were just were selling like chocolate just, and yeah, chocolate and gummy bears and all this stuff in malls basically. And so the reason I got attracted to the business was that look candy has really high margins we had you know 60 percent plus high margins we had a monopoly in the malls so the malls wouldn't put another candy store there so you had basically this captive audience and um there's no fashion to candy like i didn't have to come up with the next greatest candy like the same gummy bears was attractive last year as it is this year and so that you know for someone who didn't know anything about the business that made it attractive uh, and then, you know, I, I was able to buy it for less than the value of the inventory. Uh, well, why wasn't it working? Um, which, you know, is probably a whole. Th- so the person who was running these 11 stores didn't, I think, have the experience or the know-how to manage multi-unit retail, which is actually quite a challenging business, regardless. So like, you don't have to, even though it's not rocket science to operate a single candy store, when you start to add scale and you add, add multiple units, it actually is very challenging as a business because think about it as actually 11 small little businesses that you're actually operating that are subscale. Yeah. And so, so you come in and you're like, really Hey, I can do it. Problem. I've never done it, <laughs> well, but yeah. I can do it. Seriously. You're like, this guy can't do it. I'll do it. I didn't have much to lose Lee, <laughs> you know? So, so I, I basically, you know, if I hadn't bought it, I'm sure that thing would have just gone out of business. So I I ended up buying this thing. And like, I remember the first month that I bought it, I didn't sleep a single day, like basically, because I was just at night, I would just be up in panic. Like, I don't know anything, you know, and, you know, like anything, you know, you, you start learning it. And, you know, I was the store manager, I was the district manager, I was the buyer of the candy, I was the planner, I was the janitor, you know, and, um, and you know, you just kind of, you just learn by doing. And I think I actually credit my time, that time kind of very intensely of, of learning so much about how a retail operation actually works, like, and all the components, like I, I think I had one of the most unique experiences of most people in mm-hmm. understanding at a micro scale first, yeah. how all the components of a retailer works, where right. the bodies are buried right? What are the levels? Yeah, you have to de- you have to dig so deep to fix something, right? Like you're, I mean, one thing's building it from scratch, but another is going in and just layer by layer, like unraveling the onion to get to the bottom of why things aren't working and how to make it better. And it's, it's a whole process and sounds really intense. But I mean, with these 11 different stores, I mean, how do you be at 11 different places at once? Like, how did you kind of, you know, take on all of those stores? Yeah, I mean, like anything, you you couldn't, and so you had to start to build the workings of a team. And um, you know, I will say, you know, my hats off to the women uh, and men who you know kind of joined this ragtag set of stores and were willing to kind of roll up their sleeves. And I, I would say, people who work in physical retail are the hardest working people I've met. They have a lot of grit and they have Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, you know, they stand on their feet for 12 or 14 hours a day. It's very physical job. And, 
they're after it. And, yeah. you know, day after day and retail never sleeps. And so I just have a lot of, a lot of respect for that. Um, the short answer is we actually fixed the business qu pretty quickly with a lot of just kind of simple blocking and tackling. Hmm. And, um, what do you mean by that blocking and tackling? That's a very broad statement. So what, 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 so what are some of the specific things that you found wrong that you could fix fairly quickly or that you did that made a big deal? Yeah. I mean, first was just like the team who was running the stores, who had they hired, you know, what were their goals, like setting simple KPIs. And a second thing was just filling the stores with product. You know, they were fairly run dry at that point. So I think that was like having something to sell was pretty 101, fixing the lights and making sure the experience was, was uh, passable for the customer. I mean, there's a laundry list. There's nothing sexy. There's no silver bullet. There was like a hundred of these things, which I find in retail in general. Generally, there's no silver bullet. It's just a lot of things you have to execute. And we, you know, we doubled sales in 12 months, the first 12 months. And so, um, you know, the business was was solidly cash flow positive and and off to a good start um, within within a um, within the first year. I will say that. Um, my parents were horrified that I had thrown away my private equity career to run 11 candy stores. And so right, and I had took to, your whole, all your savings into it too, it. right? Yeah, exactly. So I had, um, I had one year left on my GMAT, which I had taken while I was at private equity. And I applied a couple places and was lucky to get back in here in the Bay area where I grew up, you know, at the GSP and, uh, and so that's what brought me back to San Francisco. And so, you know, here I was in Palo Alto still running, you know, running these 11 stores. And then I, that's where the idea for Lolly and Pops came. Actually, I, I, I really thought that retail was moving in an experiential direction and that, you know, that was really the forefront of physical retail. Um, and, uh, and so we built these beautiful immersive stores. I don't know if you've ever been to a Lolly and Pops, but they're, they're really incredible kind they of. They are, they're beautiful. Experience. Yeah. They're sensory mm -hmm. kind of, uh, amazing places. And so, um, we actually worked, I, you know, I worked on that while I was in business school, my, my first year and launched it. My second year, it became a huge hit right out of the gate, ended up raising, you know, kind of three rounds of capital and, and growing that business from one store to almost a hundred by the time I left. Um, and so it was quite it was quite a journey. That's a, that's probably a separate podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So what is, what are, you know, when you look back, what did you learn the hard way in building Lolly and pop? Like what was the hardest thing that you, that one of the hard lessons learned from that experience? Yeah, Lee. I mean, I think there's so many lessons to take from, you know, uh, that journey. I think the first uh, lesson that I have uh, for folks is that, um, you know, rising tides lift all boats, right? And if you are in a category or an industry where that's not the case, no matter how well you execute, it's really hard. And uh, if I think about our performance over the, you know, six years that we launched Lolly and Pops, we grew 100% year on year. And we had 14 out of 16 positive same store sales quarters. And that's a very, very hard feat to do. But the problem was, is that every year there was less foot traffic in the mall. And so, you know, when you're serving 5 million guests a year and you have a small percentage that doesn't um, come back um, because, you know, now they're shopping online, it's really hard to continue to grow. And mm -hmm. so the, I think the biggest lesson that I take away is that, you know, even if you find yourself in a high growth category, even if you execute like crap, you're going to do all right. 
But like, if you are in a category which just has a lot of headwind, no matter how well you execute, you can be the best executor on the planet. It won't matter because you just can't fight the industry. And so I think mm -hmm. that's like, if you were asked me to like, what was the one takeaway? Uh, that was that was it. And and really, that was actually the foundation the seeds for why Quince was so interesting to me. Um, and, you know, just I, I think we are in the still very early stages of e-commerce. You know, I think, you know, e-commerce is 15 to 20 percent of all retail. Um, it's my belief that we will get to 50% of all retail is online. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's trillions of dollars that are going to go offline to online and someone's got to be there to catch it. And so I think that, um, you know, every year more people are going to shop online and yeah. eventually less people are going to go to the mall. And that's a reality. And what do you think is so, going to happen to malls or what um, should happen to malls? So I'm, I've become very good friends with many mall operators um uh -huh. because we built so a lot they, of they just pretend they're not listening it's okay yeah yeah no <laughs> i mean they know there's no there's no secret here they know i i think they're in a i mean they're in a secular decline and that's you know i think there are places that are going to outperform meaning that they are experiences in and of themselves that will survive but the vast majority of them will have to be repurposed into other things that you will want um and they have to, you know, I, I, I was uh, in many ways telling them from an early time that they would have to be vertically integrated, that they would go and buy the brands, which you're seeing now, because they needed a competitive weapon. And, mm -hmm. and you know, and they also needed to make kind of an exclusive piece to their mall, because if every mall has the same set of stores, like what's to get you in the morning to go there? You know, you're just not going you know, right. to visit. And so it's got to have some kind of attraction to you. And so I think, um, I think you'll see them continue to vertically integrate and buy the retailers within their centers, um, which is a competitive advantage for them. Uh, and I think you'll see them repurpose into other things besides retail. Um, but I think it's a, it's a challenging road. Yes, it definitely is. I wonder too about commercial real estate. You know, you see all these tall buildings, they're empty right now with COVID and all of this stuff going on. And it's like, hmm, maybe they'll just all be housing. You know, <laughs> maybe commercial <laughs> will become residential. Uh, maybe yeah, malls will become schools. <laughs> yeah, we certainly need it here in, in the Bay Area. We need more housing. So um, right. it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I think um, office real estate is... Um, you know, potentially challenged as well. So, you know, let's see if we all come back to work. So with Quince, I know that you've kind of developed this new kind of M to C instead of D to C model, which at first I was like, what's the difference between, you know, is this just a word he's making up now that's like M to C, but now I get it. It's really, truly from the manufacturer to the consumer. And you're really taking out these other costs of getting it, what, into the warehouse or can you kind of talk through what that means and the reduction of costs that you've been seeing by doing it this way? Oh, Lee, you got it. You you should you should be uh, preaching the M to C gospel here. But uh, I think it's the future of retail. And so, you know, just for the listeners here, M to C stands for manufacturer to customer direct. We think it's the next phase of commerce. Uh, what it is is really, you know, and what Quince is. Just so so listeners know, is um, you know we are a curated marketplace of factories, and what we do is we go to the very best factories in the world who already produce for the leading brands, and we ship goods directly from the factory floor to your doorstep. And by doing so, we cut out so many little costs that add up and some big costs. So 
you know, obviously we get rid of the cost of having stores and, you know, Lee, many D2C companies now have stores. Yeah. Uh, they said they weren't going to. So, you know, uh-huh. we got rid of the cost of the store. We got rid of the cost of the distribution center, you know, here, uh, you know, near your house, which adds, adds costs to the goods. We got rid of kind of all the port fees and agents in the middle. There are all these people who kind of are taking a cut from most people who don't know how to get to the directly to the factory. Um, so in many ways, it was a, let me just cut out as many steps between you and, and, you know, between the person who makes something and the person who buys something kind of old school. I mean, if you think about it, like when you you think back 2000 years ago, you didn't go to a mall to buy stuff. You went to the cobbler to pick your shoes, right? You went to the person who actually makes the stuff. And so it's kind Mm. of, you know, back, back to the future, so to speak. Um, but the, the, actually the more interesting and more transformative piece of the M to C supply chain resides in the ability to manage overstock and understock in a very impressive way. And so, um, I, I listened to a podcast recently, I can't remember which one, which said something like 30% of all apparel that's manufactured is never sold. Really? Yeah. This it's nuts. So just literally burn this stuff. Yeah. Well, I've heard of that. Like brands burning stuff because, oh, God forbid you wear last season's stuff or just get it on a discount, you know? That's exactly right. They literally like, think about the environmental damage. Think about the damage to their margins. That's why they have to charge you like eight to 10 times the value of a good. Like, I think people, what people don't realize is the stuff you buy from most retailers, they mark it up like eight times, you know? And so the intrinsic value of these goods isn't actually that much. It's just by the time it goes through this whole supply chain, I just kind of walk through, it's a lot. So Mm -hmm. the, the magic in Quince is instead of keeping goods close to you as a customer, we keep it close to the source of production. And the value of that is that I can create a real-time signal from the time something sells to the factory versus a typical retailer will, uh, you know, something will sell in the store. It'll take time for that information to filter back to their corporate office. It'll take time for that to filter through their agents and back to the factory. And so there's a huge signal delay but doesn't that make it longer time for the customer to receive the product? Like if these factories are abroad and I'm ordering like a sweater, isn't that going to mean that it's going to take like two weeks to get it to me or whatever I the time frame is? That's the magic of Quinsley. Like we have figured out 98% of packages arrive in two to five days. How is that possible? We just like overnighting it everything. It's, 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 it's incredible. You have a Quince plane, basically. We've got, we need to, we need a Quince Air Force. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, if everyone uh, who listens to this podcast goes and buys something from Quince, we can get a Quince Air Force. Um, but I think, um, I think we, um, we figured out how to ship a cashmere sweater from Hong Kong you know, to LA for six or seven bucks and do that in a short amount of time. And so you're not going to spill the beans right now and tell us how you do that. I would say it's, a. I I'm happy to spill the beans. It's just, it's hard. It took us two and a half years to figure out all the nuances, the logistics, the trade details, the tax implications to build all the technology. I mean, half the company is engineering, which is very different than a typical D2C company. Um, we're, we're a company full of engineers. And so, um, building all the tech to optimize for cost and to deliver things at an incredible price was a, quite an undertaking. Finding the mm-hmm. factory was an undertaking, you know. So all these things are actually challenging. And so, the the magic here is we're not producing on demand, but we're producing near just in time, which mm. allows us to get scale 
and match supply and demand really tightly, right? And so, you know, the example I love to give is a pick your retailer ABC will, let's say they want to sell 100,000 sweaters this, this fall. What they would do is they'd place an order in March. So you go to the factory or they go to their agents and say, look, I want 100,000 sweaters. And based on last year, you know, this is how many red sweaters and how many blue sweaters I want. And so the sweater, the factory would get to work. They'd produce it, you know, mid-July, they'd be ready. They'd put it on a boat. Obviously, we've got a big pileup right now, but I know I was just reading about that with even just LA. I think there's like over 40 ships just hanging out. Yeah, it's like Armageddon. Uh, it's it, crazy. It, yeah. yeah, it's just terrible. Um, but you know, so so these these you know, these products would show up in the store kind of mid-August. And then mm -hmm. at the end of the season, you'd have too many red sweaters and not enough blue, right? But now look at Quince. What Quince is doing is every week or every two weeks, we're ordering, you know, 10,000 sweaters. And so we're able to, in real time, match the supply and demand. And for us, our goods don't have to get produced, put on a boat, come all the way here, get off of DC, go to a store. That's such a long process. And in most retailers, it takes two to six months to, to actually have goods that are to, for sale. Mm -hmm. And we can literally make goods saleable the minute it comes off the assembly line. So you know, typically one to two weeks, we can have goods ready to sell. And so that's a huge competitive advantage. And so um, I, we think firmly that all non-urgent goods, um, you know, anything that's outside of like grocery or pharmaceutical or drugstore type of things will potentially come from the factory. And what's great, uh, Lee, is, you know, we'd love to, we'd love to actually offer our technology and our know-how to other D2C brands. Uh, mm -hmm. We think we can power this direct ship for them. Um, you know, we can power our supply chain. We've got massive scale in some of these categories. And, um, you know, not only could we give, give most D2C folks better sourcing and costs, but we can enable the same M2C for them so they don't have to build it themselves because it's a long and arduous and expensive process to do it. And so, uh, you know, yeah. yeah you know, My so question is yeah. real quick, how did you turn these factories? How many factories are we talking first? And then second, how did you turn these factories into distribution centers? Essentially, like it's a totally, it's a new business for them, right? If they weren't doing this before, which I assume they were not, how did you turn them into this place that ships with your boxes directly to, I mean, do you own these factories? Like how did, how did that work? We don't own any factories. Um, we have today about 60 factories on the platform uh, and growing very aggressively. We're very picky about who gets onto the platform. You know, not only do they uh, have to, you know, treat workers well, they have to not destroy the environment in the process of making stuff. They have to produce for the best brands and have a proven track record of producing quality products, all those things. So we're incredibly picky about who gets onto the platform. The platforms themselves, I mean, I'm sorry, the factories themselves, why did they decide to get on Quince and like adopt these new practices that they've never had to before? Well, the world is changing a lot, you know? So the first thing is their big customers are dying. Like if you think about like traditional department stores, they're suffering. And mm. so all of a sudden now they're faced with, well, what do I do? You know, so obviously they could go to pick your D to C company, but most of those are small and don't have very much scale. Um, they could sell on Amazon, but I don't know if you've shopped on Amazon uh, anytime recently, but like, you know, type in sheets on Amazon, there's 4,000 results. How the hell do you know what to buy? You know, it's, right. you know, a lot of these, um, uh, I think marketplaces are flea markets now, you know, and it's really hard to decide what to buy. And I think that's part of the 
you know, we didn't, we haven't spent a lot of time on this, but we think curation is a really important part of Quince. So when you type in sheets, you're going to pick between, you know, five or six different fabrications that we think most people want, but then we're going to give you the one best sheet, you know, whether if it's a linen sheet, which is an incredible business for us because we're able to sell it for 50 or 60% cheaper than everyone else, but you will, you, you can go on Quince and, you know, we don't, we don't sell you, you know, thousands of versions of linen sheets from all different people. And you don't know what you have to choose and read the reviews and figure out who's right and wrong. And we just make it really easy for you. And, um, and we do that now for, for a lot of different categories and products. So you've been working on Quince for how long now it's been what, three years, a little yeah, over three years. That's right. Yeah. Just a little bit over three years. And so what has been, again, kind of what's been something that you've had to learn the hard way? in building this business? I mean, everything always takes longer and costs twice as much as you ever thought. It just, it, it took us a long time to like find the factories, convince them to do this. It took us a long time to build the technology to pull this off. It took us a long time to understand the nuances of international trade. Um, you know, in the beginning, it did take weeks to get the product to the customer. I mean, I remember the early days, like we'd ship, we'd, we'd make a sale, we'd be so happy. And then it would take like three weeks to the, to get to the customer. The customer would be like, you know, the price was great, but like, I, I didn't like it that much where I had to wait like three weeks and like, you know, half the time the packages go missing. I remember we did a deal. Uh, you know, we have our leather factories in Italy and we did the postal service there and, uh, you know, we worked out a deal to ship it from Italy to the customer. And that first winter, you know, half the bags didn't show up for Christmas. And, you know, we're telling the postal service, like, you know, dude, like, where, where's the stuff? They're like, yeah, yeah, it'll just get there. Don't worry. Give it time. You know, like, and I'm like these people were expecting it by Christmas, you know? Right. And so we had to build a sophistication around getting those things and we had to work through all the issues and, and challenges, you know, by country in some cases. Um, so I think, um, you know, that was one of the, one of the things, which is just, you know, this, uh, I think a broader theme, which is persistence and, mm -hmm. you know, finding these roadblocks and then figuring out how to overcome them and, and keep going. So how many days did you say you can ship to the customer straight from Europe or Asia? Two to five days. Two to five days. Don't take my word for it. Try it. <laughs> it's I still really don't know fast. how you do this. It's really fast. It's great. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're, and of course you could pay a little extra and get FedEx and you get in two days um, and you'd still save 30 or 40% off the competition. So if you really wanted it in Amazon speed, you could, you could uh, just pay a little bit more and you'd still save a, a pile of money versus anyone else. So that's really wild. So I'm going to go back to this question because when I when I ask what you know, tell us about a time you learned a hard lesson. It's not really the lesson you learned, but I want to know where you made a mistake. Like, where did you learn something the hard way? And like, ouch, that really hurt. But I learned that this is actually, you know, we we figured out the lessons you learned. But when did you kind of mess up? A big mess up of mine was um, when I decided to leave Lolly and Pops, I, uh, you know, I had been doing it for about 10 years and um, the team was great. We had made so much progress, but after 10 years of doing something, I was really tired. And mm -hmm. as much as I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, do I love candy or do I love 
physical retail. And I think if I thought in my heart of hearts, those weren't things I loved. I grew to like them, but mm -hmm. I really loved technology. I really loved nice things. I loved, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing at Quince is the reason I started Quince because I actually wake up every morning and love going to work. Um, it's something I truly enjoy yeah. uh, and would be happy to do for the rest of my life. So the, 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 one of the big mistakes was in thinking about the transition and hiring the CEO to go and run Lolly and Pops. And um, it ended up being quite a debate with my existing investors at Lolly and Pops about who to run the company. And um, I think the, the mistake I made was potentially not grooming someone internally who really understood the culture, really understood mm. the business, um, or creating more of a transition time for a new leader to really learn the business and execute it better. And I think um, in not affording that other person that opportunity to learn longer and mm -hmm. um, not affording the person uh, an opportunity also to make the mistakes that they need to and, and, and be there to catch them and help them and all those things uh, made uh, for a much, much rockier journey for Lolly and Pops um, mm. afterwards. And so I think that was one of the things that I, uh, I think about a lot in terms of leadership, in terms of succession, in terms of um, culture. Were you just eager to get out? Were you just kind of like, I'm done, like I, you figure it out kind of, were you just trying to get out because you'd been there for so long? Is that maybe why? Yeah, I mean, maybe there was a little bit of eagerness. I think um, it, it was maybe in the misguided sense that maybe the other person knew better mm. like you know because like right. okay i've been doing it 10 years and we got this far but maybe there's someone else who really understands how to get it from you know i got it from a to b and maybe someone knows how to get it from b to d you know right so it's like let them then, do their thing they must yeah. know what they're doing i'm yeah. just gonna step aside that's yeah. right and i think that was probably more of the motivation than just yeah. to just wash my hands of it and so i think that transition was not a good one, I think. And um, also didn't afford the person who took over to see whether they really liked the job either, right? We just kind of threw them in and figure it out, right? And so I think um, I think there are a lot of things if I could go back and redo, I, I would have done differently. Yeah. And you mentioned something about kind of promoting from within, which is really interesting. What do you think gets in the way of good people making it to the next level sometimes? It's a really good question. Um, I think sometimes before someone takes the next step, they really need the right mentorship and leadership to help them uh, mm -hmm. as they progress in their career. They might be really good at the job they're doing today, but when they take on a new role and new responsibilities, they may be ill-equipped for that. And um, most of us are when we take those jobs and we kind of learn and, you know, but, you know, many of us also are in companies where we have someone who can teach you. And um, founders, um, you know, are just trying to you know get the business off survive. the ground. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we're trying to survive and figure it out as we go. So I would just say that being willing to sometimes uh, have someone come in the organization who has more experience, more expertise that they can teach this person would allow them to grow a lot faster in their career than sometimes thinking that they were being passed over, right? And yeah. That's interesting. Um, I'm yeah. actually curious because, you know, as a founder, you know, we are mostly generalists. Like we know a little bit about a lot of things and we try to figure it out on the fly. And it makes, it creates this environment that, like you said, it's kind of hard to, we, we tend to 
I'm speaking generally, but I think there's this mindset of we have to hire experts in that field, which is which makes sense, but then also prevents others from having that opportunity to move up. And it's maybe coming from this place of I can't train this person because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So, <laughs> so how am I going to allow this person to kind of take on this role when we actually need someone who knows what they're doing? Do you think a good um, solution for that is like having some kind of like outside coach or expert who's an advisor to help? these employees grow within the company and get the skills or, you know, things that they need to actually, I don't know, move up if that's really what's preventing it. I generally am like down on external resources because the external resources never have the full context of the business and Mm -hmm. what's going on. I think internal mentoring is a lot more powerful because people have, they speak the same language. They understand the same people that are involved recommendations and the advice is much more realistic. And so I think uh, finding mentors, whether it's the person that you report to or not within an organization that can teach you is, is super valuable. Um, And finding those advocates for you in the organization is super valuable. Um, It is true that uh, companies hire externally for experts, but it is also true if you grow fast enough, the opportunities that you can create, continue to outstrip the people that you have and can hire. And so by by default, you end up um, giving more opportunities to the people that are the best people on your teams anyways. And so I I think it doesn't have to be an either or. I think uh, it is a function of growth. It is a function of stage of the company, the challenges the company is facing. Um, And and I think, um, you know, good people always find a way to shine. You know, they always find a way to... um, take their career to the next level. Um, so I, I, sometimes, I don't know. I think there's good people out there that, you know, could get, they maybe get let go or there's no support internally to help mentor that person because the team's too small. Or I, I do think actually that's good. People have a hard time sometimes maybe moving to the next level for whatever reason, I'm not sure. And I think it's different. That's why I'm curious your perspective. No doubt. I mean, that all these things can happen to you. (laughs) Um, I'm reminded I have a two and a half year old daughter, uh, Lee, and I have been reading her this book for a while now, The Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. I don't know if you've read this book, Um, but um, it talks about this person and finding your path in life, essentially. And they talk about times in which you're leading the pack. And then, you know, uh, there's a, there's a start and there's a saying in there. I don't know if I'm going to say it right, but I'm sorry to say, but hangups and bangups will happen to you. Right. (laughs) It's the the reality. And then you, you know, and then you'll find yourself in a slump. Right. And you've got to find your way out of the slump. And so I, I tell people, look, you've got to be the architect of your own career. No one is going to do that. People will help you, but Mm -hmm. you've got to be intentional bad things will happen to you in your career. It's okay. Like it's happened right. to everyone. Setbacks do happen. Um, but how you, how you deal with it is what really matters in the end. And, um, and so I think, I think, uh, people who want to succeed will find a way to succeed. And, yeah. um, and I think there's has to be a level of proactivity there, especially in high growth companies when, I, you know, I say there's, there's no one training anyone in a high growth company, right? You're just barely trying to keep the damn thing, you know, flying basically. And so, you know, um, you know, there's one fire after another. So I, they're not places that someone is going to actively train you. If you want that, like 
you know, go to Solomon Smith Barney Citigroup where I started my career. They're very good at training people. Um, and so, um, you know, so I think in these instances, I think it's really uh, about initiative um, and uh, a willingness to kind of get and dig deep and and figure it out. I feel like that Dr. Seuss book or is kind of lost after it's like you get it, you know, your dad reads it to you when you're two and a half years old and then you forget about it. And then you go yeah. to high school and college. And then you think that that, you know, you forget. It's almost like, where's this book throughout the entire journey of growing up to constantly remind us that actually things are really tough and it's normal to have these really low lows or super highs with the ebbs and flows of building a business. Um, but I think very often people think that things look very easy to accomplish and they're like, oh, I'm going to go do this and it's going to be great. It's all going to be sunshine and rainbows. Um, Nothing can be further from the truth. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, it's very challenging. You know, it's a roller coaster. I mean, it, uh, some days you're up, some days you're down, and you know, you've got to, you've got to tell us about your yeah. most down day. My most down because you're day. already doing great. I mean, you had to, like, you know, you've you had a very successful company, you're on to your next successful company. Let's talk about, you know, when things weren't really good at all. Like, what, what's been the hardest day? Um, what has been the hardest day, you know, um, you know, if I think about, um, you know, if I think about 2019, so there was, you know, kind of early summer of 2019, um, the person who had taken over Lolly and Pops was struggling or had struggled and the company wasn't doing so good. And uh, meanwhile, Quince was well on its way to doing something really interesting. And so here I was kind of involved as a CEO of, of one company, uh, Quince, and, you know, thinking about Lolly and Pops, um, you know, and trying to help that company compounded with that, uh, you know, I found out my mom got very sick, uh, you know, uh, with cancer. And, um, and so there was a day or two that, that, that month where it was a really hard time, you know, how yeah. do you balance your commitment amongst the things you had to do? And, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, I chose my mom and I chose Quince and those were the two things I could do. I couldn't do all three. Um, uh, it was not possible for me to emotionally and physically give in all three directions. And so, um, that was a really hard day. It was a really, really hard day. Um, yeah. so bang ups and hang ups will happen to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you pulled through, you know, yeah. that's, that's the crazy thing because I think what people don't think about are those moments, right. That almost not really break us, but break the opportunity, you know, um, and you, you kept pushing through, um, which is really hard. I, I think so. I mean, I'm just so proud of the team at Quince. I mean, we've, I, we didn't get a chance to talk a little bit about our progress, but the company has just started to grow so fast. If you look at our first six months, seven months of this year, we did 16 times the volume of last year. And um, wow. the business has just grown and grown and grown. And we've entered a tremendous amount of new categories uh, and the customers have received that and they're visiting with a very high frequency already. You know, we have a very small catalog in retrospect, but 
our customers on average uh, come back four times a year already. And, um, really? and so, um, you know, hats off to the Quince team to kind of persevere uh, through, through the valleys and uh, are now on the ups, upscale. I and mean, we just had our, our best month ever in August um, and it was up 40% from the prior month. And so wow. it's, um, it's just been a really, it's been a really wonderful journey. I think it's fascinating that you you guys pretty much kind of took off, you know, during COVID, during a time where personally I was like not buying anything apparel related, you know, I, you know, you're wearing the same thing almost every day, right? So how, how, you know, tell us about this customer, I guess, that is uh, buying new things and I guess still just doing Zoom calls or whatnot. Like, tell us more about your customer and how kind of you guys survived COVID. Well, the first thing to note is we just, aren't a apparel company. We also yeah. have a big home business and home is now 40% of our business uh, and up from almost nothing last year. So the wow. home business is just on fire and has been for some time. Um, but I think, look, I think, um, you know, people, you know, need various things at various times. Last year, they needed a lot of sweats. So we, you know, mm. I can't tell you how many cashmere sweatpants we sold. Oh, right. You know? Nice. And yeah. for like, you know, 80 bucks or whatever we're selling it for is like a steal. Like you just mm -hmm. can't get that in the market. And so I think, you know, uh, I think there was a whole need to kind of, you know, update your wardrobe for that. I think, uh, customers have now moved into a, a desire to just still want comfy things and comfy clothes. Yeah. And, you know, as we launched a legging, which, um, you know, don't take my word for it, read the reviews, people have said is as good as Lululemon and it's a mm -hmm. third of the price, you know, so we're selling these leggings for like $30 and people are like, wow, this is incredible. And, um, and so, you know, how are we meeting the needs of the customer where she is or, or he is, you know, and, uh, I think as long as you're kind of have your kind of, um, finger on that pulse, it's a, it's a good thing. We also sell kind of the core essentials in your wardrobe and in your home. And so I think these are things that you would need regardless. Um, I, you know, it's also true that during COVID, a lot of people didn't go out and eat at restaurants and things like that. And so they spent stuff upgrading their house and, you know, potentially their wardrobe and all these other things. So I think all that definitely helped us. Absolutely. Wow. Home business is 40%. That's kind of not shocking, I guess, because of COVID, everybody's, you know, focused on the home and making it more comfortable. And where do you see what's next for you guys? What kind of categories are you going to get into? Yeah, I mean, uh, we are constantly thinking and experimenting about new things that we're going to launch. Um, so I can't give away any exciting stuff here, but you know, we're constantly thinking about what we can quincify. So what are the things that quincify. you wanted most, <laughs> uh, you know, but like, you know, I always think about things that like you always wanted, but then you didn't want to spend the money to buy and you just hope someone would give it to you, you know, in a gift or something. Those like the best gifts you ever get. Yeah. And, um, how can we quincify the next things in your life? And, um, uh, and so, you know, um, you know, so, so this year it's been, you know, we launched rugs, which have been really successful for us. We launched socks. Uh, our socks are incredible. Um, and a fraction of the price of which you'll find anywhere else. And so, um, I think, um, you know, some of these categories are just, just have a lot of tailwind behind them, uh, that we're going to, we're going to hopefully get on everyone's feet or on people's floors or on people's beds or whatever it might be. What do you think has been the key, um, to your growth and the success ultimately? Like how 
Is it something from a marketing perspective you guys figured out? Like, how have you attracted customers? How have you guys grown? Lee, the whole um, thing about Quince is in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. The M to C supply chain enables high quality at radically low prices. And, you know, if you're selling things people already buy, but at 50 to 70% off, well, simple kind of supply and demand economics will say that you will capture share. And that has been true for us. So, you know, if you go to, you know, you used to shop at XYZ retailer and now Quince comes along and buy, you know, sells the same thing for 50% off, you know, why wouldn't you want to save, save that money? And so I think it's just, you know, human behavior almost. Um, right. But you can't just that, put up a landing page and hope people come, right? Like there's promotion of people have to learn about you. So how have, how have you brought, you know, how have you done that? Yeah. I mean, look, we wanted to create something that people would talk about and mm -hmm. that would get people to shop over and over again. And so, you know, we've kept a fairly low profile, even though I think the scale of our business would shock you, Lee, and, um, and shock a lot of people about how mm -hmm. fast we have built this business. Um, but I think, that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of word of mouth and, um, you know, you, you know, if I gave some of the figures on repeat, but like the business is repeating a lot, like customers come back over and over again. And of course that funds a lot of marketing activities. If you don't have to pay to acquire a customer over and over again. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. um, you know, how do you create value for the customer and get them over again? I mean, it's a very simple business fundamental idea. And so, um, well, we think the way we do it is by offering really high quality essentials at 50 to 70% cheaper. And so, um, you know, it's a very simple message. It's a very simple idea. It's really hard to execute, really hard to deliver. Um, but, but that's, that's, in my opinion, that's the secret. The secret is the technology and the supply chain, not some crazy marketing innovation, like, you know, where we shot a viral YouTube video that someone learned about us and went crazy. It's, it's, I think it's much more durable. Interesting. Awesome. Well, um, do you have any other kind of final advice for any of the listeners out there that are inspired and thinking about how they can maybe build their own business one day? Yeah. I mean, I think two things I, I touched on in the, in the chat. One is, um, you know, find a problem that's authentic to you uh, that you really want to solve that like you're really motivated to solve, like not one that you're kind of tangentially excited about or that you kind of tangentially understand. Try to find a problem that you really understand that really affects you. Cause I think the best entrepreneurs need the motivation uh, uh, to get through the highs and lows that, you know, we talked about Lee. And, and I think that goes to the second point, which is persistence. Like, um, you know, uh, through Lolly and Pops and Quince, there's been a lot of setbacks and a lot of highs as well. And you need the, the persistence to get through the low points to get you to the next high point. And uh, it's really underrated how valuable persistence is to an entrepreneur. Uh, and if you mm -hmm. read about anyone from Elon Musk to Steve Jobs to you know pick your famous entrepreneur, all of them had a number of setbacks along their way. And, and I don't know a single person who has, it. you know, yeah. everyone has setbacks. And so the question is how you deal with that and, and how do you keep moving forward and how do you solve those challenges? And I think the best entrepreneurs are the ones who are very agile and persevere through the really tough times. Yeah. 
And I appreciate you going there, you know, today. Um, and I hope that your mother is okay. And I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, that's devastating news for anyone. Um, but I really appreciate you opening up about that, you know, having that kind of personal story is always hard to share, but also something that isn't really talked about in on these business podcasts where it's all just business as if that's the only thing that affects our ups and downs. But really family obviously is a big thing as well that can influence our decisions and influence our persistence and all these other things you're talking about. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Lee. I really appreciate you uh, bringing me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.